Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is week number 8 in our series. We're looking at verses 12 through 20 this morning. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray and just uh, ask the Lord to help. Lord Jesus, we've gone through a lot this morning so far. Lord, we ask now that you would help us to fix our attention upon you. God, what you are saying, what you are revealing to us, God, pray that we would see Jesus. Pray that you would help us to uh, have soft hearts, that we could receive your word. God, that we would give you the attention and worship that you alone deserve. Jesus, there is nothing greater that we can give ourselves to than you. So I pray that you would help us. I pray you would speak this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue to open our eyes and our ears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. American cultural values. All right. Did a little research this week looking at different international student websites who where students come into America and these websites will then give the students an idea of the cultural values of Americans, okay? There was a common theme that kind of ran through these cultural values at all these different websites, but if you were to say what is one of the, one or two of the most, like the most important or at least the most valued cultural perspective of Americans, what would you say that would be? What would you think, what would be up there at the top of the list? Materialism, maybe? Okay, what else? What is it? Greed. Entertainment. Success. Family. Independence. Bingo. Bingo. Independence. All right, I'm going to read just a couple of things they say about independence. Independence is the top of of every list, okay, just so you know. Americans strongly believe in the concept of individualism. They consider themselves to be separate individuals who are in control of their own lives rather than members of a close-knit, interdependent family, religious group, tribe, nation, or other group. All right, that was one website. Another website said individuality listed at the top. U.S. Americans are encouraged at an early age to be independent and to develop their own goals in life. They are encouraged to not depend on others, including their friends, teachers, and parents. They are rewarded when they try hard to reach their goals. That was the International Student Guide. Now, this last one said individual. Listen to this. The most important thing to understand about Americans is their devotion to individualism. Right? It's their, is our devotion to individualism. That's the International Student and Scholar Services. That's the top of every list. We're, in, we're independent. We're individuals. We esteem. We devote ourselves to individual. That's how we are described. So what does that look like in our culture? How does that individualism get played out in our culture? What do you think? How does that get played out in our culture? Think about that for a second. When you look at the media, the things that we spend our money on, things that we do with our time, how does that individualism get played out all around us? 
too many choices, so we can do what we want because we've got plenty of choices to choose from. Self-centeredness. Do what's best for me, even at a cost to other people. How does that get played out? What about in our, what about in the way we spend our money, right? How about the way we think about how I spend my vacation time? Or what about our sexuality, right? If, if I am devoted to individualism, I don't want anyone telling me how I should spend my money or my time or how I have my sexuality or my freedoms or anything. Man, it is all about me, right? Think about it. I mean, there's an entire marketing industry given to selling us things that that tell us this is how you can be you. Now, let's look over at the city of Corinth. We're going to get back to the individual in a little bit. The city of Corinth, this was the Las Vegas of the ancient world, right? They had everything they could possibly imagine. Money, sex, power, international fame, goods would travel into their city from all over the world. They had temples, they had parties, they had everything that they could possibly want. They had plenty of options. It's much like our world today. It's much like our culture today. It's, it's amazing how similar these two things are. Now, last week, as we looked into the first, the first Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, Paul says this. He lists off all these different these vices that have permeated the church and was all surrounding the culture. And he said this. He said, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. See, this was a new church in a new city full of new believers, right? This wasn't, they didn't have a history of Christianity and this church was planted. They had no history, no, no um, recollection, no even foundation of anything Christian at all. These were completely brand spanking new believers all gathering together. They didn't, have, they didn't have a whole New Testament to, to go over and look through their lives. I mean, they knew nothing about Christianity. And here you, we throw them all together and we say, okay, be Jesus Christ to this, this culture that's, that's so dark and so oppressive and so enslaving around you. You can imagine what kind of problems would happen. And that's why as we, get, as we look through as we've looked through these first six chapters, what the Apostle Paul is doing to these believers over and over and over again is he's reminding them of who they are in Jesus Christ. He's like, look, you've got to keep some things in mind because the, the, the things around you are dark and they're oppressive and they're going to enslave you. And the things that your life was a part of, man, that old way of life is no longer. So in the first chapter, he talks about fellowship with Jesus Christ and how we live our lives in Jesus Christ. The second chapter, he says, we're given God's Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us. Chapter 3, we are God's temple where his Holy Spirit dwells. Chapter 5, we've been cleansed because Jesus Christ has become our Passover lamb. 
He's been sacrificed for us. He's saying basically the same thing over and over and over again. He keeps bringing their attention and focus back to Jesus Christ and his accomplishments on the cross for us. He says, therefore, you're changed. You've been brought out. You've been transformed. You're not the same. That's not your way of life any longer. He has to keep reminding them every single week. And he's going to continue to do that for the rest of the book. Because he needs them to understand who they are in Jesus Christ. If they're going to live out the calling that God has placed on their lives, they, can, they must never forget what Jesus Christ has done and what he's called them to and what he's empowered them to do. The same goes for us. The same goes for us. We are in a culture that knows nothing of Jesus Christ. There's some semblance there. There's some memory there. But as we move farther and farther along, the the memory of Jesus Christ becomes dim. And therefore, the light of, of, of him living inside of us and as a church, he's become so bright, so crystal clear that all can see and know who he is. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're gonna, I'm sorry, chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 12. Paul writes this to the church. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. Now, he quotes some things that... The Corinthian, that was, there were some slogans that were going around in the Corinthian church at the time. Things in the culture, maybe, right? All things are lawful. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. So this is the epitome of human wisdom, right? Paul, in this, is in the first few chapters, begins to talk about what human wisdom is like and what the wisdom of God is like. And he says, human wisdom is nothing compared to the wisdom of God. They're two completely different things. He says this, Human wisdom would say this, because he's not necessarily talking about food, right? Because he moves on after this. He, but if we have desires for food, right? We have, we've got, we got hunger pains in our stomach, and God's given us food, then that's a gift from God, and we should be able to celebrate that and eat the food, right? The stomach's for food, and food's for stomach. It's, it's this understanding that we've, God's given us these desires and he's given us food, well, he's meant us to fulfill these desires with the food that he's given us. It's a gift from the Lord. This is, this is a good news for us. He's given us desires, and he's given us a way to fulfill those desires. But he, what he's, not, he's not necessarily talking about food in this, because let's continue on in verse 13. The food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for, the, for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. He moves on. He quickly moves on past food, starts talking about sexual immorality. Now, the word that Paul uses for sexual immorality is this word porneia. Okay, porneia. What word do we get from porneia? Pornography, right? It's the word he uses. It's this kind of this, this umbrella word that encompasses every kind of sexual immorality that's outside of the covenant of heterosexual marriage. So anything outside of that covenant of heterosexual marriage is classified as porneia, or sexual immorality, as they translated it. 
So it's outside that covenant of marriage. And so what the Corinthians are doing is they're saying, look, if we've, if, if we've got hunger pains and God's given us food and he's given us a means to fulfill those, those hunger pains with the food, then that's, that's a blessing from the Lord. Well, we've also got sexual desires and God's given us the gift of sex, so why don't we just fulfill those sexual desires with sex? I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? The stomach for food, the food for stomach, sexual desires and sex. I mean, God's given us all these things. So they're using this as an excuse for sexual immorality or porneia. But this whole thing, this whole first part here, it's all about me. It's about my desires. About how I'm satisfied. What I want. My urges. And as an individual, I know what I want. And it's within my desire to fulfill those desires. So, why can't I do something about it? I am the master of my own body. I am an individual. But he says this, the body isn't meant for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord. See, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we read this. This is God's plan from the very beginning. We see this in, in, in the Old Testament as well as the New. It says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, we have been saved and redeemed and called to the the purposes of the Lord with all of our lives. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is who God has made us to be. He's got purposes for each one of us to fulfill and to walk into. God's done this. It's been his purpose from the very beginning of time. Even from the very beginning, when God says to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, he says, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the rest of the earth. That's our calling as well. He's called each one of us to be a blessing. And it's hard and difficult to be a blessing when we are enslaved and entrapped and in bondage to sin. He says, no, I've called you into freedom. I've called you into the light to be a blessing to all the nations. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way in which human wisdom may sound like it makes sense. Human wisdom may sound even appealing. Well, surely this makes sense. God's food and stomach and, and sex and sexual immorality. I mean, it just it sounds like it could make sense. But in the end, it leads to death. Let's continue on in verse 14. And God raised the Lord, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from porneia. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you, have, for you were bought with a price. 
So glorify God in your body. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Now, it's interesting here. He talks about fleeing from sexual immorality. Right? Well, James 4, verse 7, what does that say? It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, it talks about standing firm against the attack, the spiritual warfare, staying firm in the Lord. But with sexual immorality or porneia, you don't stand your ground, you flee. Right? There's a, there's a number of areas in life that God says, no, you, you need to stand your ground. You need to fight. But with this, with this in particular sin, with porneia, and all that it's, all that's encompassed in that word, it says, man, you are to flee. You are to get out of there. Reminds me of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. If you remember back in Genesis, Joseph, one of Abraham's sons, no, I'm sorry, Jacob's sons, one of Jacob's sons is sent away to Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, he is enslaved and he's working for Potiphar, a high-ranking official in the Egyptian government. And while he's there, Potiphar's wife says, hey, why don't you, uh, you and I kind of hook up together at some point? And Joseph keeps ignoring her, keeps ignoring her. One day he's in the house and they're there alone and she grabs hold of him and says, man, you better come to bed with me right now. And what does he do? He doesn't sit there and say, well, let me just, let's have a Bible study about why that would be wrong or maybe we need to, I need to do some outreach and evangelism to you at this point. No, no. It said he ran out of the house as fast as he could, man. And she ripped, his, she ripped his coat off as he's running out. He didn't stop to say, give that back to me. He just kept running. He fled with all of his might. So how do you deal with sexual immorality? You get out. You flee from it. You run with all your life. About a year ago, I was sitting here at church. It was a hot, hot summer day. It's probably close to 100 degrees outside. And I looked out the window, out these, the doors down here, and across the street was kind of an older car, hood popped up, kind of smoke coming out of it. Uh, and there were two college students, a guy and a girl, kind of laying out on the lawn in this, the people's house across the street. Well, it was super hot, and I knew they were probably roasting out there. So I went out there and said, hey, do you want us to call a tow truck? What do you want to do? He's like, you know what, the car's got to, once the car cools off a little bit, we can get it started again, we can go on. I said, well, in the meantime, would you, you, you guys can come into the church, you guys can sit in the sanctuary, turn, you got the AC on, you guys can get something to drink and just wait it out. I said, oh, thank you very much. So they came in, and we had a, just a brief discussion together. It seemed like really nice college students, and... Um, sure enough, the car cooled off after about an hour, and they had, had some water. I said, hey, the guy, as the guy's leaving, he's like, man, thank you so much for just, like, welcoming us in and, and give us a place to rest and get something to drink. And he said, you know, would it be okay if at some point in the future, maybe if I was, you know, want to talk about church or anything else, maybe I can give you a call and we can just dialogue about church. And I said, hey, that's no problem at all. I'd love to talk to you about the Lord and about God's plans for your life, and any questions you have about church, it'd be no problem. So, so I gave my cell phone number, right? Well, later that night, about 8 o'clock, 
get a phone call from the guy. I'm like, oh, that's great. He's, you know, he said, hey, I'd love to hang out sometime. I said, no problem. He said, how about tonight? I said, well, kind of like got five kids, putting the kids down, but maybe some other time we get coffee, you know, it would be great. So no, actually, he's like, tonight would be great. He said that to me. I said, no, I'm sorry. I can't get together tonight. It's kind of like me putting the kids down and stuff like that. He said, well, actually, I've got some girls here, and I'd like to offer you their services for free. And my jaw dropped. And I was like, what? What? Where did this come from? I mean, it just completely shocked me. It's like, yeah, you know, we can get together tonight, and I can take care of you, and, you know, we, it just... And this righteous anger just welled up in me. It was like I was totally blindsided, right? I was completely blindsided. I'm like, I mean, I did not see that coming. And I just, it was like this thing did not please the Lord. It did not please the Lord. And I just told the guy, I'm like, man, I don't know, I don't know where you're coming from, but man, I'm married, I've got kids, this is, I mean, on top of, I mean, of the million reasons why this is a bad idea, this is, you are disrespecting my wife, dishonoring the Lord, and man, don't ever talk to me again. Hung up the phone, and later it's in a text, hey, I'm so sorry, you know, I was out of line, I didn't mean to be disrespectful, I still want to hang out, and so I'm like, look, man, I- I'm so sorry, but please don't ever contact me again. And I talked to some people like, man, what's the, you know, you have, uh, you, there might be an opportunity to reach out. This guy's lost, clearly. He needs, he needs to know Jesus. And I'm like, well, then I'm, that, that, I'm not that guy that's going to be able to do that with this, with, with this guy. What's going on here? This is not, I don't appreciate this, you know. And it to even entertain an idea like that, it makes a mockery of my relationship with Michelle. It makes a complete mockery because I belong to another, right? I belong to another. I talk about everything else, belong to the Lord, my kids, I mean, everything. And because of that, I'm like, man, this guy's got my phone number now, so I block my phone Called the police. So look, I told this guy not to contact me anymore. He's still contacting me. He's still sending me text messages, trying to he's trying to make amends in whatever way he is. But this guy should not be contacting me anymore. Called the police. Police came in. They showed him my phone. I'm like, the last thing I need for Mercy to find out is some guy, you know, for him to come with a different story. Him saying, "Oh no, this is what this is what the pastor said to me," or I try to take care of the pastor, whatever it may be. I'm like, no, no, I need. I need to make sure my name is clear and this church's reputation is, is crystal clear in this matter. Called the police, reported everything, showed them all the text, told them about the conversation we had, took a report, you know, everything. So all that to say, it was the drastic measures that had to be taken because I valued the, the relationship with my wife and my relationship to the Lord. I belonged to another. See, when we have given our lives to Jesus Christ, 
when we have trusted him for our salvation, his blood has covered over all of our sins. And now we belong to Jesus. That's what he says. He says, you are not your own. We, are, we, are, we, do, we don't belong to ourselves. This idea of individualism, right? That our culture values and it esteems and it pursues and it is devoted to. It says, look, biblically speaking, that means that it's completely contrary to everything that God and Jesus Christ has done for us. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ has purchased us and now we belong to him. Therefore... Anything else that would come between that relationship, we have, we're going to have nothing to do with, ever. Just like that guy saying, hey, look, man, I've got some, I got some girls for you. That's completely dishonoring, disrespectful, because I belong to another. There's no room for any of that. That's the grace of God to us. We have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. His love and mercy not only empowers us to flee from sexual immorality, it gives the power to walk in obedience. It saves us, it redeems us, but it gives us his strength and his power to walk in obedience to him. That is the grace of God, what he's done for us. And that's why looking back in a few verses, back in verse 11, he says this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. See, there is repentance and there's forgiveness for us. Because sometimes we do mess up. Sometimes there is, sometimes we do fall. Sometimes we do walk in disobedience to the Lord. There is repentance. And that's why he's telling this church who has lived in this culture, who continues to live in this culture. They're not removed from this culture. They live in this every single day. And you better believe there are some people who have fallen back into these ways of living that, that aren't honoring to the Lord. And he says, look, there is, you have been washed. You have been forgiven. You have been cleansed of your sins. That's why there's hope for us. When we do screw up, there's hope because he gives us his grace to, to repent. Not only that, but we've been sanctified. We've been set apart for God's purposes. We've been set apart for the Lord. And lastly, we've been justified. We've been declared righteous because of Jesus Christ. That even in our darkness, even, in we, even when we do fall back into old ways of living, God still looks at us and says, you are declared righteous. You belong to me. I've given you my name and given you my spirit. Therefore, we have hope. There's hope for us. There's hope for the sexually immoral. There's hope for the idolaters. There's hope for the adulterers. There's hope for homosexuals. There's hope for drunks. There's hope for people who are deceptive. There's hope for thieves and revilers and swindlers in the kingdom of God because Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, he's transformed us and changed us and called us his own. There's hope for us. It's because of Jesus. I'm going to close. And I'm just going to close in prayer. And as we do so, I want to just invite you to areas of life that we need to repent of, that we would, we would go to the Lord 
and ask him to forgive us, to cleanse us, to purify us, to set our feet on the rock again. So Lord Jesus, God, for those times that we have walked in disobedience, Jesus, we thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, cleanse us, purify us, wash us clean again. Jesus, thank you for your grace that not only saves us, but gives us the strength to walk in obedience. Jesus, thank you that we are not our own, that we belong to you. All of us. All of who we are belongs to you. In your name we pray. Amen.